uh, back at it. We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast. I am Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell. Colby, it's my favorite week of the entire year. It's finally here, a spring Masters for the first time since Tiger Woods won. Are you fired up? Carson, it's so good. It is so Uh, good. Right on cue. I've always got it ready. Any time of year, 365 days, you need the Masters music, I got you covered. Man, it's a it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful Tuesday. We're one sleep closer to Thursday morning at Augusta. I love the Masters music. I kind of really grown to like the the CBS music they start playing. That dun 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 dun. dun, dun. It gets me fired up. I, I'm just I'm ready. I'm so ready. We're going to talk a lot about the Masters. We have a lot of OSU stuff to get to as well. So if you're worried about all golf all the time, or we will talk OSU, but we'll save the Masters talk for the end. But first, let's hear from Chris University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop. Be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com. You're going to want like an OSU polo to rock while you're playing golf this weekend and watching the Masters. Chris's is your place to go. So we always appreciate Chris sponsoring the podcast and great people over there as well at Chris University Spirit. Colby, uh, national championship game last night. Uh, I'm going I'm to open the floor to you because you were on Baylor early this season. And uh, why don't you go ahead and take a bow? Carson, I felt so validated last night. I was, I'll be honest, I was a little er, little nervous earlier in the day yesterday because I'm like, all right, I've been riding with Baylor all season. I've gone out on a limb. I've said they're undoubtedly the best team. They're going to beat Gonzaga. I picked it in my bracket pool. I've got Baylor everywhere in every pool that I'm in. So I was a little nervous. So I'm like, you know, Gonzaga, they've got all that momentum from that big win on Saturday night, all that adrenaline. Is that going to help them? Is that going to hurt them? Is it going to have no effect at all? And then Baylor comes out and they do what Baylor does. They just absolutely torched Gonzaga. And and one thing that I don't think Baylor's going to get enough credit for, because everybody's going to talk about the three-point shooting, which was great, but it was very close to their season average. It was only about 1.8 percentage points higher than their season average. Uh, You know, they took care of the ball well, only turned it over nine times. But Carson, Gonzaga was not prepared for the way Davion Mitchell plays defense and the way Jared Butler plays defense and Masio Teague and Vital and, and, and Tamba and all these guys, Chamba Chacha, um, all, all these guys, Flagler, the, the team defense that Baylor was playing and the individual defense that Davion Mitchell played, Gonzaga averaged north of 90 points per game this year. They scored 70 last night against Baylor. The, the team defense that Baylor played was something Gonzaga clearly had not seen and was not prepared for. Yep. And again, I, I, I'm, to- I'm glad you brought this up because if you're sitting here today saying, well, Baylor just got hot from three, you're totally missing what really happened in this game. Baylor only hit 10 threes. Gonzaga hit five. It's not as if Baylor hit 20 threes in this game. They only made 10. They shot 43%. And you're right. They've done that all season long. This is not some shooting aberration from Baylor. I think every starter they have practically shoots 40% from three, or all their guards do, rather. So this was not won by three-point shooting. You're exactly right. They held them to 70 points. Like, that. that's so far below what Gonzaga does. They had them completely out of sorts. Jalen Suggs got thoroughly dominated by, by Butler. I mean, Butler was the best player on the floor. He was sensational. Obviously, Mitchell as well with the defense he played. But I'm just glad the Big 12 finally gets some respect on their name. And you were right, Colby. You said, what, a month ago, two months ago, that Baylor was going to 
went out and, and, and they obviously lost to OSU, which is the second time my man PFB Nate on Twitter pointed out two national champions have lost their last loss was Oklahoma State. That was the, the year Kansas won it with Bill Self and this year with Baylor. But you're right, Colby. Baylor was the best team by far this year. Yeah, I mean, I just looked at what Baylor was pre-COVID. And I think that post-COVID, I think everybody forgot about that a little bit. Baylor, um, not only were they undefeated before their COVID pause, they won all of their games by 11 or more points. They were probably as dominant as Gonzaga was in the West Coast Conference, and they were doing it in the Big 12. And I just, man, they were so good. And I, I said when the Big 12 tournament started, I said Baylor will not lose another game this season. They'll run through the Big 12 tournament, and then they'll run through the NCAA tournament, and that'll be that. Now, I was wrong. Oklahoma State beat them in the NCAA tournament, but I put this out on Twitter last night. The Baylor season has three segments. From the start of the season to COVID, they were just absolutely dominating everyone. After they got back from COVID to the end of kind of the regular season through the conference tournament, definitely looked like they were still trying to find their legs. You could even make the case that early in the NCAA tournament, maybe they still were. But then I think they really got back to that form that they were on in December and January. And I mean, I think that that was pretty evident. They ran through um, they ran through the, the Sweet 16, Elite Eight, Final Four, and the National Championship and really never got all that tested. They really didn't. I mean, they were so much better than the teams that they were matching up against. And I, I want to get your take on this, Carson. I saw some, some people last night on Twitter talking about how the overtime game Saturday night against UCLA is why Gonzaga got run off the floor last night because they were tired from those five extra grueling minutes that they played against UCLA when in actuality Gonzaga got to rest from December 28th to March 9th from December 28th to March 9th Gonzaga's toughest opponent was a BYU BYU was their toughest opponent from December 28th. So basically Christmas until the NCAA tournament, the toughest team they played was BYU. They had two and a half months to rest. So don't tell me five minutes on Saturday was the difference in them winning or losing that game. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, that was my brick. Let's just go ahead and do buckets and bricks while we're here, because I called this guy out is John Wilner. He obviously he covers the PAC 12. So he was trying to make the point that, he was trying to give it up to UCLA because he covers the Pac-12. He basically said, what did he say here? He said, Baylor was going was going to be a difficult matchup for Gonzaga no matter what, but UCLA game clearly took a toll on the Zags. One-two punch. Bruins staggered him. Bears sent him through the ropes. And I just quote tweeted and said, um, Baylor clearly hit them over the head with a steel chair. This was not that they were already staggered. Like, And again, I understand you cover the Pac-12, but like, if your take is that Gonzaga was tired, you didn't really watch the game. You're, you're making excuses for Gonzaga for getting their butts kicked. That's exactly what happened. They were thoroughly dominated in every phase. There's no other way to say it other than Baylor thoroughly dominated the game and won decisively. They were up by 15, 16 points nearly the entire night. Yeah, they were. And I, I tweeted out, uh, you know, I tweeted out in the first half with like eight minutes left. And this is something that I never do because I'm always, you know, I don't want to be the guy on freezing cold takes who tweeted <laughs> in the middle of the game and then a team made a comeback. But I was so confident that 
Baylor was going to continue to play the way they were playing. I tweeted out with like eight minutes left in the first half. If we had clips from me all season talking about Baylor being the best team in the country. And I saw a lot of this. We talked about this with Oklahoma State a, a few weeks back, too. A lot of people at halftime were like, oh, man, Gonzaga, they really got beat up in that first half. And they're still only down by 10. Y'all better watch out in the second half. And people take their team getting dominated by a better team, but still kind of having a tether of hope. They take it as like some sort of positive thing that you just got dominated for 20 minutes. No, no, that game was over at halftime. You want to know why? Because the reason Baylor dominated Gonzaga for 20 minutes is because they're a much better team than Gonzaga. And they were going to do the same thing in the second half. Baylor, the, the, athletic bigs that Baylor have gave Drew Timmy all the problems in the world. And I'm telling you, Jalen Suggs was not prepared for Davion Mitchell. Davion Mitchell as an on-ball perimeter defender is so, so good. I mean, he is an elite on-ball defender on the perimeter, and I, I hope he gets the credit that he deserves for that. And I think he is from what I saw last night. Yeah, I think so. And coming into this tournament, I picked Gonzaga to win it. And my reasoning was obviously they were undefeated. They won 28, 29 straight uh, by double digits. But I, in the back of my mind, Colby, I, I kept thinking, well, Gonzaga never wins the national championship. And I think, and again, I'm not trying to be overreactionary prisoner of the moment, but I think this is just kind of what they run into once they get to final fours. They run into just a different level of opponent, a different level of tested power five opponent, like a Baylor playing in the big 12. And this was a great team. They have NBA guys does Gonzaga, but I think this is why they don't, they haven't won a national championship despite all their success, despite all the final fours is just, they're not quite ready with the conference they play in for this level of opponent. Now they do play, they beat West Virginia. I understand that, but we can all agree. West Virginia was not, you know, vintage Bob Huggins, West Virginia. They shouldn't have been a three seed, but this is just kind of in the back of my mind, Colby. I kind of knew this was going to happen, but I still pick Gonzaga anyway. Just they ran into a, a buzzsaw from a from a power five, and that's what gets Gonzaga in trouble sometimes in the tournament. Yeah, they did. And it's not like they didn't play a good non-conference schedule. They did. If we're talking regular season and NCAA tournament, this year Gonzaga beat Kansas. They beat West Virginia, Iowa, Virginia, USC, UCLA, Oklahoma, and Creighton. Gonzaga has some good wins on the schedule. Gonzaga was a very good team. I just, I, I just am of the belief I've never picked Gonzaga to win the national title in my bracket pool. I've never done it, not once in my life. Uh, I, probably, me. I probably won't be doing it anytime soon. And it's not because they weren't a great team. They were a great team. But every year, there's just one, maybe two great teams that come from a Power 5 conference that has other really good teams that test them night in and night out for two and a half months while Gonzaga's running up the score by 30 on San Francisco. And I just, I think that that matters when it all comes down to it. I don't think it prohibits Gonzaga from being one of the best teams in the country, but I do think it prohibits them from being the best team in the country. So I've never picked them to win my bracket pool. I didn't do it this year. I won't do it next year. I just, uh, I did have them in the championship game this year, because like you said, it doesn't really hurt them until it's like right at the end. And they really haven't faced that kind of pressure all year. They haven't faced the kind of perimeter defense that they saw last night all year. And they were uh, unprepared for it and overwhelmed by it. So I think if those two teams play 10 times, Baylor wins seven, probably uh, Gonzaga will, would still get a few on them. But one thing that I think is pretty evident as well, Carson, is that the drop-off from the second best team to the third best team in college basketball is 
huge. I mean, it was Baylor and Gonzaga, and there was a, a small little gap between Baylor and Gonzaga, I think. And then I think there was a huge gap from Gonzaga to Illinois. Houston, Houston I, Illinois. Houston. I, I, don't, I don't even know who the third best team in college basketball would be. We could probably throw out 10 different t- schools, but Baylor and Gonzaga were a clear one-two. Yeah, that's why that title game was so intriguing leading into it. And I, I think in hindsight, the warning signs were there because Oklahoma gave Gonzaga a pretty good test without Devion Harmon. And obviously UCLA took them to overtime and it took a half-court shot for them to lose. So the, the warning signs were, were way more there with, with Gonzaga than they were for Baylor. Baylor pretty much handled business throughout the entire tournament and are thorough, deserved, you know, national champions. And so the, finally the Big 12 gets some – some respect on their name by winning a national uh, championship. So it was a fun college basketball season, an unbelievable tournament. And I think we turned the page with Oklahoma State now, Colby. And you and I haven't discussed the decision from Avery Anderson, which I think caught a lot of people off guard. And there's a tend to react like people. We tend to react when we hear this news because in the past, when you enter your name in the draft, that's it. But not the case with Avery Anderson. He's testing the draft waters, but can return to school. But what was your take on his decision? Just to quote the uh, new Jeopardy host, Aaron Rodgers, R-E-L-A-X, relax, <laughs> Oklahoma State fans. This is – I'm fairly certain that this is just a, a procedural decision. He wants to get his NBA grade. He wants to go through the process, see what it's all about. I don't imagine that Avery Anderson uh, will be in the NBA next year. I imagine that he will be at Oklahoma State next year. I don't know that I'd be shocked if he got a better grade than, than maybe we're anticipating and decided to go, but I would be surprised if he did. He's still a younger guy. He still has a very small sample size of him being, you know, a guy more more than just a role player at the collegiate level and I think what he could do by coming back for a year and averaging 20 points a game next year in the big 12 potentially leading the conference in scoring I think what that could do for his draft stock is so um so much more valuable to him than than going out and trying to be a a mid-second rounder this year I don't even know what he would be I don't know what his grade is but I would be surprised if Avery Anderson wasn't playing basketball for Oklahoma State next year. And just for anybody who doesn't know how it works, with basketball, with the NBA, players can declare for the NBA draft. They can go through the process. They just can't hire an agent. And as long as they don't hire an agent, they can go through the process and then decide, hey, I would like to come back to school. I I think that's what Avery Anderson will end up doing. But I guess it depends on that draft grade. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But just relax. If the time comes where he doesn't come back to school, then we panic about what happens next year for Oklahoma State offensively. But until then, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, I'm not really worried about it either. I think him and Devion Harmon will both be back at Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. And, and I think you're right. I think the real opportunity here for Avery Anderson is this is going to be his team next year. I mean, he's going to be the Cade Cunningham of this team in terms of the, the lead scorer, the, the lead ball handler. He has such an opportunity to take control of this team and really make a run in the Big 12 next year that I think that's, A, I don't think his draft stock's going to be that high because he's a little undersized, and obviously this draft is going to be so stacked. But I just think the opportunity, you just look at what, you know, like people were talking a lot about Jalen Suggs and how had he gone to like the G League and made a ton of money, his marketability wouldn't be anywhere near what it is now after the run he made with Gonzaga and hitting a half-court shot. And I, I'm not trying to compare Avery Anderson to Jalen Suggs by any means, but 
I do think he can way he has way bigger opportunity to get into that first round by coming back next year because I, I don't believe he's going to be a first round projected pick. So I'm not too worried about it either. Well, and one other thing that I want to point out, um, you, you know, some of these other guys, I don't know what kind of statement Davion Harmon put out. I think it was a little bit longer than what Avery Anderson did. This is what Avery Anderson put out on Twitter. After conversations with my family, I have decided to declare to declare for the 2021 NBA draft without an agent. That, that, that's what he put on Twitter. Now, I don't think that if he thought that he was leaving Oklahoma State and never coming back, I don't think that's what he would have put out. I think he would have put out some long uh, soliloquy about how much he loves Oklahoma State, how much he loves Mike Boyne, how much it's all meant to him, how much the fan base means to him. He didn't do any of that because I don't think he thinks he's leaving. I think that he put out uh, that he was declaring for the draft without an agent, and that's all he put out because I think he kind of knows, okay, let's go through the process. Let's see what it's about. And I think it's smart for him to do so because guess what? When he actually is ready to go to the NBA and he is actually ready to hopefully maybe one day be a first-round pick, then he'll understand a little bit more about the process. Uh, he won't be going into it completely blind. So I think it's smart by Avery Anderson, and I think he'll be back. I do too. And Mike Boynton has, hasn't signed anybody because he's hitting the transfer portal hard this offseason. And Marshall Scott wrote a, a column on, on pistols firing 11 players Oklahoma State could add to its 2021 class. And there's obviously a lot of names, a lot, a lot of guys that are already in school that could transfer. A guy that's intriguing to me on this list, Colby, is a late signing freshman named Tamar Bates. He decommitted from Texas after Shaka Smart left town. He's the number 56 player in the 2021 class. And he has been on OSU's campus. He visited Stillwater in 2019. Uh, he, he originally from Kansas City, played at IMG Academy in Florida, which we all know what IMG's, you know, the, the level of talent they have at their disposal. So a lot of intriguing names on this list, but uh, Tamar Bates is one that stands out to me in addition to all the other, you know, potential transfer targets. Yeah, Tamar Bates uh, definitely stands out for me. Another one is Jalen Cohn, who would be a, a transfer from Virginia Tech. And he's got his list down to seven, Oklahoma State, Indiana, Iowa State, Penn State, Nebraska, Buffalo, and Northern Arizona. One of those is not like the others, Carson, and it's Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State's about the only program on that list that seems like it's headed in the right direction right now. Um, I'm sure some purist, some basketball purist will tell me that Indiana uh, is the name on that list to watch out for. Indiana they're not anything in college basketball until further notice Indiana's not anything in college basketball so he's a big one uh to watch out for and then who was the recruit gosh I, I lost his name um taller guy oh my gosh I cannot remember his name he's like six foot 11 center that's a recruit that that has Oklahoma State uh Kalel Ware that's who it was Kalel Ware uh six foot 11 center uh he's got Oklahoma State listed on his top schools list so that's another one to watch out for boy if Oklahoma State could land an elite he's six foot 11 210 pound center he's got his top 10 schools rattled off Arkansas A&M Kansas Texas among names on the list ORU is on the list good for ORU for making the final 10 with OSU but Kalel Ware is a name to watch because if Oklahoma State could get themselves uh, a really good college basketball big man gosh that would just work wonders for a team that's pretty set at guard that's their biggest need in my opinion I, I just I, I never really understood what happened with Caleb Boone down the end of the season stretch I mean he was playing like 10 minutes in some of those tournament games so no I'm with you that that might be the the most important of these guys is is where uh, Jalen Cohn you mentioned 41 percent from three so that's a that's a good shooter that you would love to add to your to your roster and Mike Boyne has shown a lot of success uh, in terms of maybe not, you know, 
difference making transfers, but he's had a lot of success convincing guys to come to Stillwater. And then some have been big hits, like a, like a Kendall Smith, like a, like a Bryce Williams. Others have been misses, misses like a, a fair and flavor. So it's, you're really rolling the dice with some of these transfers, but we do know Mike Boyne has shown a lot of success and able to convince guys that Stillwater is a place for them. So that that's intriguing. And I think, I think Mike Boyne's going to, going to land some good players here because that's what college basketball is now, Colby. It's much less, you know, you're recruiting classes and getting them in as freshmen. It's more hitting the transfer portal hard. And, and I, I am in, encouraged by Mike Boyne's uh, track record with the, the grad transfers. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's uh, it's still just exciting. Oklahoma State basketball is exciting right now to see what's going to happen next. And you, you would assume that a couple of these guys will be added, and that'll be good for Oklahoma State. Obviously, uh, you know, I think the biggest priority still is making sure that Avery Anderson, some combination of Avery Anderson and Bryce Williams are back, whether that's one or the other, whether that's both. I don't know what the case is going to be. Would love for it to be both. That would give Oklahoma State uh, its best chance to not lose any of the momentum that they pulled up from this season. But, man, if they could land one or two of these grad transfers and then get a couple of these high school kids to commit that are, that are pretty high-rated prospects, then you just keep the momentum going. Because the last thing you want to have, Carson, you, you don't want to build all this momentum while Cade's here, and then all it takes is a couple down years to lose that momentum. you got to keep it rolling because you don't want want these young kids to forget how special the culture was this year how special Mike Boynton is all that stuff that happened this year you want it you want it to be at the front of everybody's mind so you got to keep the momentum rolling uh and that happens over the next few months with getting some better guys on campus getting some better guys committed and just continuing to stack recruiting classes it's what we talked about you've got to stack classes to stay consistently good it's what Scott Drew's done at Baylor it's what Mike Boynton needs to keep doing at Oklahoma State and I think there's a real opportunity in the Big 12 next year. There's a lot of turnover. I think Baylor is going to be the favorite again because they're going to keep some of their guys. Obviously, they're losing Butler and Mitchell, but we all know Scott Drew. He has another you know top 10 recruiting class coming in. You look at Texas, new, new coach and Chris Beard uh, taking over a roster that he didn't exactly put together. Texas Tech has a new head coach, and Oklahoma has a new head coach, uh, Porter Moser, who I, I think was a really good hire, Colby. I I have questions about his recruiting prowess. He hasn't really recruited to a school like in Oklahoma. Certainly hasn't recruited against the behemoths in the Big 12. But of all the coaches that were out there, this guy's pretty proven. I mean, over the past 35 years, he's one of 10 coaches who have led a non-Power 5 school to a Final Four. And that list includes the likes of Mark Few, John Calipari, uh, Gary Tarkanian. It's a, it's a who's who. Uh, of list of people that have done that. So I think it was a good hire by Oklahoma. Yeah, I think it was too. And like you said, the, the big concern uh, whenever a coach comes in from a different part of the country, who's never been in the part of the country that he's going to is recruiting. You know, does he know, does he understand what's happening? And what does everybody always say? It's almost become cliche at this point, surround yourself with a staff that knows the region. And it kind of looks like uh, Porter Moser started to do that. He hired K.J. Turner, who was down at Texas. Before that, he was down at SMU. So as long as he surrounds himself with some good recruiters who know the area, who know the high school coaches, I think Porter Moser is a good coach. He's obviously uh, was phenomenal at Loyola Chicago. I, I know 
you can just pull up his winning record, all that stuff. The program that he took over at Loyola Chicago was completely in the dumps. I think they won, I don't know, not a handful of games his first few years there, but he slowly built it up and he slowly got it to where they made a final four run this year. They beat Illinois and went to the sweet 16. They won their conference now a few times. So he clearly can coach be really interesting to see what he does with some better players. And it'll be really interesting to see if any of OU OU's guys who have declared come back because he's basically going to be starting from scratch. If not, I mean, uh, Austin Reeves going David Davion Harmon going, and then Brady Manick grad transferring out of Oklahoma to go play ball elsewhere. So that's all very interesting. And Porter Mosier will have his work cut out for him early with Oklahoma. Uh, and I would challenge Oklahoma fans to be patient. If all those guys do leave, don't expect Porter Mosier to come in and win the conference in year one and take you to the sweet 16 in year one. I think that that'll take some time for him to, uh, to build it back up if all those guys leave, but he's a good coach. So I, I think it's a good hire for OU. I do too. I think it's a good hire and just the big 12, again, just a murderer's row of, of coaches. I mean, every coach besides Boynton and the new Iowa state coach have been to elite eight. That's uh, the level of coaching competition he's going to face, but uh, big 12 is going to be going to be interesting next year. And I, I'm certainly excited to see what Mike Boynton can do coming off the year he had with, with Cade Cunningham uh, big news in Stillwater this week, Colby uh, OSU has a new president. Dr. Shrum is the 19th president of Oklahoma State University. Is it Casey Shrum? We, we were trying to talk before we started the show how to say her first name. I should know this because we ran stories on, on Channel 5, but doctor, I'm going to call her Dr. Shrum. Yeah, my guess is Casey. It could be Case, um, but I think Dr. Shrum is appropriate. She worked hard for that doctorate, and we'll call her uh, Dr. Shrum, and thrilled for her to be the next president at Oklahoma State. The two names that kind of were floated around prior to the, uh, the Board of Regents meeting, which ran over by about five hours, and the announcement was delayed for the new president at Oklahoma State until almost 11 o'clock at night. Um, but I, the only two that were made public were her and then a provost from Auburn. And I'm like, man, if we could really get an Oklahoma State person, like that's all I want. Just don't bring in some outsider to run the university. Have somebody uh, who, who knows Oklahoma State, who's been around, and um, is just, I think, a, a brilliant hire for Oklahoma State from everything I've read. Uh, obviously the first woman to be president of Oklahoma State University, uh, which is a big deal. So congratulations to Dr. Shrum and looking forward to the continued progression of Oklahoma State University. Yep, Mike Boynton tweeted out, really proud of the leadership at Oklahoma State. New President Shrum is overqualified for the position and will enhance the experience for our students and staff. She will also be a great asset to Stillwater. I look forward to watching the university grow under her leadership. So Mike Boyden's all in on OSU. He's all in on the new president. So it's a it's an exciting time. Burns Hargis did a great job. Going to miss seeing Burns out, around town. Maybe he'll still be around town, but he did a great job as, as the president of OSU. And, and uh, by, the, yeah. by the way, uh, Dr. Shrum earned her degree from the Oklahoma State College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed executive leadership and management training programs at Harvard and Stanford. Not bad. Uh, you got Harvard and Stanford next to your name, along with Oklahoma State. That's uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty that's salty. Michael, that's great Michael Scott would say, win, win, win. Exactly. exactly. Uh, we need to hit on anything else, Cole, before we get to the Masters? 
Uh, Oklahoma State baseball, good weekend. I know they run ruled West Virginia on, I believe it was Saturday. Uh, and then Oklahoma State softball, a couple of walk-offs to get the sweep against Iowa State. And Natasha Mack, Naismith Defensive Player of the Year, 112 blocks on the season. Oklahoma State women's basketball got hosed by the committee, had to play the eventual national champion in the second round of the tournament and gave them a run for their money. Uh, so good stuff from Natasha Mack. Congrats on that. Huge, huge honor. Yes, great honor for her. She was just a force. I mean, just immense inside for OSU. And she led the nation in blocks. And I just looked up uh, the WNBA mock draft on ESPN. They have her going number 10 overall to Los Angeles. So that would be a, a big deal for, for Jim Littell, the women's basketball program. Uh, that's, uh, she, I guess she was number five in their mock draft earlier. So she fell a little bit in this mock draft. But it's going to be hard to see her lasting past the first 10 picks because she, she was unbelievable. Yeah, having done absolutely no research on this, I think I can say pretty confidently that if she goes in the top 10, it'll be the first time in Oklahoma State basketball history that they'll have a, uh, a man and a woman drafted in the top 10 in the same year. Oh, great point. That's a great point. So we'll be looking forward to the, the men's draft and the women's draft uh, for all the OSU uh, faithful. Uh, Masters talk, you ready? Oh, I was born ready, Carson. Where do you want to start? I mean, there's so many storylines. I think obviously the the, the prevailing storyline was not many of the top players were playing that great coming in until Jordan Spieth has just continued over the last two months to just absolutely stripe it with his irons. And, and people, Colby, are so misconstrued about Spieth. They think he just rolls in 35, 40 footers all the time. It's really his iron play is why he won the majors that he did. He he was the best iron player in the world during that stretch when he won the Masters in, in the British Open. So he's he's back to full form and is near the favorite. He is the favorite, I think, in, in some books now, and he's he's certainly in the top three. Yeah, I've still got DJ listed as the favorite where I'm at at eight to one, but I've got Spieth right behind him at ten to one. Obviously, Spieth is one of the favorites, and his stats at Augusta are ridiculous. I mean, the way that he has played this golf course, uh, there have been few in the history of Augusta National who have better uh, strokes gained, greens and regulation, ball striking stats, putting. I mean, he just plays this this course unbelievably well. But I don't know, man. Just the emotional ride of coming off that four year drought, nearly four year drought. From the 2017 Open uh, to winning the the Valero Texas Open last week, I, I just don't know how much of an emotional toll that's going to take on him. Y you know, it, it feels for him like he got over the hurdle last week. Now, does that uh, relax him a little bit, and he comes out and misses the cut, or is he playing great golf and he comes out and continues to play great golf and wins the tournament? I think either one of those could happen. It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, there are a lot of good collegiate storylines around here. Obviously, Spieth is a longhorn. Scheffler's a longhorn. We've got the Sooner, Abraham Answer in the field. We've got Cowboys in the field, uh, Victor Hovland and Matthew Wolf. So of those five guys I just listed, Spieth, Scheffler, Answer, Hovland, and Wolf. And actually, let's take Spieth out because that's the obvious answer. So Scheffler, Answer, Hovland, or Wolf. Well, of those four, who do you like? Say it one more time. Uh, Scheffler from Texas, answer from OU, and then Hovland and Wolf from Oklahoma State. Which of those four? I've got Hovland. I'm a little worried about Scheffler having played like 800 rounds in the last two weeks between yeah. <laughs> playing consecutive weeks and then going as deep as he did in the match play. Uh, he certainly is, is a good fit course-wise. But I think people are sleeping on Hovland, man. I, like he didn't play that great in the match play, which match play's a screwy deal anyway. And he... But man, he's he has so many top tens this year. 
the Masters sets up so well for him. He really played well as an amateur there. He finished, I think, 35th as an am, and he's obviously gone to a completely different level now. I think he's flying way under the radar this week. I think Victor could absolutely finish in the top five, so I'm, I'm going to go with Victor. Yeah, Victor would be the one I would go with as well. And, uh, you know, I think people forget he played here in 2019 as an amateur. He was right next to Tiger whenever he got the green jacket put on him in 2019. And then Victor Hovland did not play in the Masters in 2020 because when the cutoff was for the Masters back in April when it was supposed to be played and then it came around and was played in November, he didn't qualify. So Victor Hovland did not play in the November Masters. So he hasn't played uh, Augusta National in two years since he was there in 2019. But I do think that he is going under the radar for a top 15 player in the world. The way that he drives it at Augusta, I think a lot of those holes are really going to fit him uh, to get it down there in the fairway. And then it just comes comes down to a short game. If he can get up and down from some tough spots throughout the week, he'll put himself in contention. That's where he's kind of had some troubles. Obviously, he's an elite ball striker, one of the best in the world. Uh, so hopefully his short game, uh, chipping, putting, everything around the green is locked in. If it is, like you said, I think he can be top five. Uh, I don't know that he would necessarily be on my short list to win the tournament because winning the Masters takes just a whole different level of, uh, of elite on Sunday afternoon that I don't know we've quite seen yet from Victor Hovland, but you just never know. So uh, hopefully he'll be in contention on Sunday. And if not him, Matt Wolf, just give me a cowboy on the leaderboard. Yeah, I think Wolf has obviously struggled mightily this year, but it's like people also forget that he dang near won the PGA and was in the final group at the U.S. Open. He's obviously he's obviously proven in, in the majors, and I know he's not playing well, but we've seen that before. Some guys aren't playing well coming into Augusta and really play well once they get there. And I think – his length is just such an advantage. So if he can just hit his irons better, he, he should make the cut and certainly could make some noise just with his sheer. He should he should be able to overpower this course much in the way that, that Bryson DeChambeau does. It's just he's lost strokes off the tee. His biggest weapon, Matthew Wolfs, has not been kind to him lately. It's been a weird, it's been a weird thing to watch, but I certainly think Wolf could surprise some people this week. Uh, Victor has improved his chipping and putting around the greens i think he's still year to date he's still 108 around the game around the green strokes gained but just in the last month i believe he's in like the top 20 so he really has improved that area so that's why i'm bullish on on victor because he obviously has the t to green game but he really has improved his, his chipping and putting which he's famously said in his first pga win i, I suck at chipping but he doesn't anymore he, he's gotten it done with his short game lately so i'm high on him uh, a lot this this week but give me okay my, my buddy Kyle Porter who I spoke with on the sports animal this week CBS does kind of an interesting format here they do a winner a sleeper a top 10 lock and a star who definitely won't win uh, I can I can start if if you want to formulate your answers here yeah, go ahead go ahead I've got my winner and my sleeper I just have to figure out a top 10 lock and a, and a star that will uh, will fade well I got to go with Justin Thomas and I wasn't, I wasn't going to go. I, I've been saving Bryson DeChambeau for my one and done all year, but the more research I do is his highest finish at Augusta was 21st. And that was when he was an amateur. He just has not played well here. He sprays a little bit too much at Augusta and his biggest strength is hitting it out of the rough, which is why he was so good at the U S open. And there is no rough at Augusta. So that really negates his, his number one asset. So I'm going with Justin Thomas, who really is underachieved in his career, considering the type of player he is. He has improved, though, every single finish 
ever since he's been there the last five years, culminating in a, a top four finish in the most recent Masters. And this is second shot course. He's the best iron player. He won the players. And I think every Masters winner over the last, I think, nine years has had two top 15s in the lead up to Augusta. And that certainly qualifies JT. So I want to go Spieth because he's playing so well and just he turns into a a magician when he when he walks on the grounds at Augusta but I gotta go with JT I'm, I'm picking Justin uh yeah JT is also my winner I, I love JT this week last three years at Augusta he's first in strokes and approach the green he's first in greens and regulation he's hitting the ball really well I don't care that he lost at match play match play is a weird format you and I have played at Carson anything can happen in match play it's it's a different a totally different style of golf uh, and not really comparable. And I I don't really use it to uh, prognosticate what's going to happen moving forward. So JT as my winner, I do have my sleeper, Carson. Now let me ask you, I've got two. I've got one guy who's 40 to one and I've got another guy who's 90 to one. What does 40 to one qualify as a sleeper? I think so. I think anything over like 35 would be my guess. Okay, so um, at 40 to 1, my sleeper, and this is a guy that I love this week as a dark horse to sneak up on people, Paul Casey. Ah, that's my sleeper. Serious? Yes. I'm on every DraftKings team. So do I. I hate this because we're going to have a lot of overlap. I'll go with someone else, though. I got got a lot of guys I like. I just meant we're in the same DraftKings pool and we're in the same one-and-done pool, I think. So we're going to have a bunch of overlap, it sounds like. Um, yeah, I love JT. I love Paul Casey. My 90 to one guy was Louis Oosthuizen, who I saw yesterday is only 38 years old and he's got to be the 50 year oldest, 38 year old on the planet. <laughs> I feel like Paul Casey looks like he's still like 31 yet. He's like what? 41. Yeah. Paul Casey hasn't aged a day. I have no idea how old Paul Casey is. I know he's been around longer than I can remember. Well, well Casey I think I, I think I picked him in my one and done one year and he missed the cut at the masters like two years ago, nice. maybe. So I'm, I was a little burned by him, but, but no, Paul Casey's been, I think he's been the best iron player other than JT in the world. He has, he's hitting the ball unbelievably well. And he has very few finishes outside the top 15 uh, going back to the California swing earlier in the year. He, he played in California. He went over to Saudi Arabia and won either there or in Dubai, had another couple top tens on the Euro tour, came back over here at concession and top 10. I think he top 15 at the players. Uh, I mean, he's, he's just been lighting it up. He's got a good track record at Augusta. So I, I am all in. I, I think I've rostered Paul Casey just about everywhere this week. Yeah, he's underpriced on DraftKings, so I think he's going to be one of the more popular players. But I've got two more. Uh, this is a guy that I've just faded all year long, and he just continues to, to bite me. He's finished in the top 11 in his last four tournaments at the Players, Arnold Palmer, Workday, Concession, and Genesis. He's 45-1, to 1, and he absolutely thrives on firm and fast courses. If it's firm and fast, you need to play this guy, and that's Matthew Fitzpatrick. He mm. leaves the flat, he leaves the 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 stick, uh, the the pin in when he puts, which looks just bizarre. But he's so good. I mean, every year at the Arnold Palmer, when it's just blowing and the 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 greens are real firm, he always plays well there. And he's he's he has one top ten in his career at Augusta. He doesn't have a great course history, but this is a guy that I just can't get away from right now. It's Matthew Fitzpatrick. Yeah, that's a good one. I like Fitzpatrick this week. I've actually, uh, I don't think I have him on DraftKings, but I've got him somewhere else. He's playing well. Uh, we ready? What'd you say the next one was? Top 10 lock? Or did you have another sleeper? I got one more. Okay, hit me. Uh, two guys. I got two more. <laughs> I love this range. Uh, Corey Connors is one of the best ball strikers in the world. He's team no putt 
but if he just puts at a field average, he'll be in the top 10. He finished tied for 10th in the November Masters. He's really trending. He's another guy that has a couple top 15s in the last uh, couple weeks. So he, he certainly fits that mold. And a guy that my, my buddy Vic Ramsey here locally uh, is friends with, grew up with him in the same area back in Ohio, in Louisville areas, Jason Kokrak. He's finished in the top 10 in his two most latest tournaments besides the match play. He's long, and he's really improved his putting. He went from one of the worst putters on tour to, to top 10 in strokes game putting this year. So he's a guy to watch out for. I think he's a great value on DraftKings if you're, if you're playing DraftKings. So Jason Kokrak, Corey Connors, two guys I like at 80 to 1. Yeah, I've been on Kokrak a lot this year, so I like that pick. Uh, my guy for a guaranteed top 10, I'm going to go just a little. I'm not, it's not DJ. It's not Bryson. It's not Rom. It's not Spieth. I'm going down a little further to a guy who, for whatever reason, I think is being totally left out of the conversation this week going into Let me a guess. Death. Let me guess. Hit me. Patrick Cantlay? It is not Patrick Cantlay. Even oh. lower odds than Patrick Cantlay. Give me Xander Schauffele as a guaranteed top 10 lock this week. See, he, I always pick him, and he, he has an unbelievable course history at Augusta. I just don't think he's playing very well. So I don't know if I'm going to have much of him. But why, why are you so yeah. bullish on him this week? Well, he was playing great a little bit earlier in the year, and then he he kind of backed off. I don't think he's going to win the tournament. He hasn't been playing as well of late, but he plays really well here. And another thing I like, he plays exceptionally well at Kapalua. Those are two golf courses, probably the two golf courses on tour that have the biggest undulation in the fairways where you have to hit so many iron shots and approach shots with the hanging lies ball above your feet 18 inches ball below your feet 18 inches it's just it takes so much creativity to hit all those shots off those fairly severe uh slopes in the fairways he's he does it well at kapalua he does it well at augusta uh so i think that he is a safe bet to top 10 this week you know who's number one, and I like that. I mean, I, I like your reasoning. I just – there's so many names that I like more than him this week. Do you know who's number one in strokes gained total this year? Strokes gained total? It's by a, it's by a, by a significant amount of margin, too. Uh, I don't. Is it Cantlay? It is Cantlay. Huh. 2.14. Next best is Morikawa at 1.43. Then Paul Casey, Justin Thomas, Corey Connors. Sergio Garcia, who I like this week as well, Bryson, John Rahm. So uh, Cantlay certainly is trending in the right direction too if, if you want to go with him. But his salary is pretty high on, on DraftKings. Makes him, he makes it kind of a tough fit, but he could certainly make your lineup a little, little different if you fade Spieth or, or JT. Uh, yeah, I like Cantlay. I, I thought about throwing him in this week. Is that your, is that your top 10 lock? Or are you that's, just... my, that's my top 10 lock. I think that's that those numbers there are really hard to ignore. And I think that's, I think that's, if I looked it up, right, that's a major trend too with masters winners. Who's who's strokes gain total coming in usually finishes in the top five to top 10. So I'll definitely go with Patrick Cantlay. How about Colby? What was my last one here? Uh, top, top 10 guy who won't win it. Yeah. Star who won't win it. Top 10. You want a top 10 player or a star? A uh, star who definitely won't win. Okay. I, I don't think Terrell Hatton's a star. He's top 10 player, but I don't think he's a star. A uh, star who definitely won't win. That's tough. All the stars could win. I'll go Rory McIlroy, who is trying to figure things out with his swing with Pete Cowan. Uh, there will be one, maybe two days where Rory doesn't have it, and he shoots even par, uh, and that'll take him out of the tournament. So I'll say Rory, Rory McIlroy is my star who won't win. That's who I was going to go with. 
because he of course he always has like you said one round where he just blows up at augusta and without but he has he's finished in the top 10 six times in the last i think 12 years so he he has a great course history he just he can't get rid of that big number but i'll go a different route i'll go with patrick reed and again, I, I, it's a it's a dangerous pick because he has won this tournament before. He has the he's the best putter on tour. He's the best around the greens typically. Just the year he won it in 2018 was such an anomaly. He didn't fit any of the strokes gain models. He didn't fit any of the approach uh, strokes gain models. He just kind of willed it to win, which is how he wins golf tournaments. And it was such an outlier. He was playing so he didn't, I don't think he had a top 20 in a major coming into that. It certainly didn't have a top 20 at Augusta. So I just off the tee, he just he's not good enough, I don't think, to win this week. So if you if you like Reed, I'm I'm fading him. Uh no, I don't like Reed ever. I, I never like Reed <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons. So I like the fade there. I, I don't know. The year that he won the Masters, he he didn't even strike it all that well. He chipped and putted his way to the win that week. He only had 104 putts on the week, uh, which is the lowest, I believe, in the last 40 years by a Masters champion. It, he just he chipped and putted his way to it. Uh, I don't think that that lightning is going to strike again this year. And we can all hope that it doesn't because the last thing we need is Patrick Reed having two green jackets. That just – I don't know if I can handle that. That's the one that got away for Ricky. I mean, Ricky made that clutch putt on 18. The crowd was going ballistic for him. Everyone wanted him to win that year. And Reed kind of, and I'll always remember this, one of the biggest what ifs is Reed on 13 hit it short just above Ray's Creek. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sat on a downslope. It just kind of, it caught the rough just kind of perfectly to where it didn't trickle into the water. If that ball trickles in the water, I mean, I, I think Ricky Fowler wins a green jacket and completely changes the narrative on his entire career but that's golf that's sports and uh that's kind of what happens give me your uh, top five finishers in order top five finishers in order all right i'm gonna go justin thomas one uh colin morikawa two paul casey three xander shoffley four um and then who do i want to throw in there at five i'll throw i'll throw dj in there at five give me the number one player in the world i'll throw him in there as well okay I like that. Write those down so I remember them. What did I say? JT, Morikawa, Casey, uh, Xander, and DJ? Yeah. We're not not too different. I'm going JT, as we mentioned. I got Spieth second. I think this is shaping up to be the the announcers talking about how great friends JT and Spieth are in the final round as they they duke it out. I'm going to go Cantlay three. And again, I I have a side bet with a buddy that this was made, gosh, probably two years ago. That, that Fowler would win a major before Patrick Cantlay. This is kind of before Cantlay turned into what he is now. I was like, what are you talking about? What side of that bet do you have? I had Fowler. <laughs> you have Fowler. Oh, no. I texted him like two weeks ago and said, I, I should probably just, the gentlemanly thing to do is just go ahead and pay my debt now. I think that's the, it's such a bad bet now that I should just go ahead and pay it, but I'm not going to. You never know. You this, just was back when, this is back when Cantlay literally couldn't putt. I was yep. like, there's no way that guy's going to win anything. He can't putt. So I'll go JT, Spieth, Cantlay, Lee Westwood, who has an unbelievable course history here. He's playing some of the best golf of his life at nearly 50 years of age. He's kind of like Phil in that when he gets on the grounds, he just, he always tends to play well at Augusta. So I think Lee Westwood's going to be in the top five. And Paul Casey, who we've mentioned, I just, he's too consistent with his irons. He's, he's not going to win because he doesn't, he doesn't win. He's kind of like a, a Ricky in that he's usually in the top 10, but doesn't win. 
But those are my top five. JT, Spieth, Cantlay, Westwood, and Casey. I like it. We both got Paul Casey in there. So, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully not too many other people are on Casey because I want to win these pools that I'm in. And I'm pretty confident uh, that Paul Casey's out there. The Masters is undoubtedly my biggest gambling golf week of the year. Um, I'm in... Dude, I don't know. Eight I've lost count. Week, maybe. I don't, I don't even know how many pools I'm in. Uh, each one with a different financial value. So uh, I'm trying to mix and match just a little bit in all these different pools to kind of broaden my horizons on, on where I can hit. But it's tough, man. You fall in love with a couple guys who you think are going to be great and you just stick with them. So hopefully who have we- you bet? Who have you actually uh, like bet bet? Not just pools, just like outrights. So far, I've actually bet Morikawa because he's 30 to one as the fourth ranked player in the world. Uh, I bet Webb because he's 40 to one as the ninth ranked player in the world. And then he's got the same odds actually as Paul Casey, who I've bet at 40 to one. And then I also bet Louis Oosthuizen, put 10 bucks on him at 90 to one. Uh, you never know. The oldest 38 year old on tour. He's got good course history at Augusta. So if his putter gets hot, he could be right in it. Those are the four bets I've placed so far. I will probably circle back uh, and throw one on JT as well. Maybe even one on Xander. Bill do anything for you at 100 to one? Uh, no, hundred to one is not nearly good enough price for me to go after Phil. I would need about 500 to one to wager on Phil at this point. His game is, it's not lost. I mean, he, he can still play a little bit, but it's not anywhere where, near where it needs to be to win a major. Don't be surprised if he's on the leaderboard this week, Colby, because for the first time in two years, he's gaining strokes on approach his irons. <laughs> he's flushing his irons lately. So don't be surprised. I don't think Phil's going to win. Certainly. I don't even know if he'll finish in the top 20, but he certainly, it wouldn't surprise me in the first two rounds, he's up near the leaderboard where he's hitting his irons. It's kind of going to the radar. Yeah, I'd feel a lot more comfortable uh, with a top 10 bet on Phil than I would with a winner's bet. If, if you like him this week, that's the way that I would go. Okay. Well, Colby, enjoy the Masters. I cannot wait to, to watch it unfold and we'll certainly uh, break it all down. Uh, we'll probably break down on Friday what's happened so far. Hopefully the, the local guys play really well and we'll, we'll talk to you then. Yes, sir. Sounds like a plan. Go, folks.